With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Interviews, news, and analysis of the day's global events. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Well, hello and welcome to your Global News Hour. On today's show, UNESCO pushes ahead with its plans to censor the internet from conspiracy theories and misinformation as more and more people are coming out against the elements of the digital prison being constructed around us. I'll do a deep dive into this later in the hour. Meanwhile, Elon Musk is under fire for suggesting Israeli talking points after his trip to the Middle East. The Australian Labor government is rushing to push through new detention laws for illegals before Parliament breaks for the year. And the push is on for you to contact your local MP ahead of the December 1 cutoff for the World Health Organization International Health Regulations for your country to opt out. But first today, the Israeli prison services freed 30 Palestinian prisoners after 10 Israelis and two foreigners were handed over by Hamas in Gaza. The heads of the US and Israeli intelligence agencies have arrived in Doha for talks with Qatari officials. The Egyptian spy chief is also in the Qatari capital. More people could die from disease in Gaza than from bombings if the health system is not repaired, says the WHO. Mediator Qatar says Israel and Hamas have agreed to pause the fighting for that additional 48 hours beginning Tuesday. The US says it airlifted more than 54,000 pounds, around 24 and a half tonnes of aid items for Gaza today. And the delivery which was sent to Egypt included medical supplies and food. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has said in a statement, this is the first of three planned airlifts in the coming days. And only 24 hours remain for Palestinians to get in order to get prepared to face the new situation if the ceasefire is not extended. The French ambassador to the United Nations, Nicolas de Riviere, said that the protection of civilians and humanitarian relief should be prioritised in Gaza. We need more, he said. We need the release of all hostages. We need to move to a permanent humanitarian truce. And we need to move to a ceasefire. We, when asked if there is momentum in the UN Security Council for a resolution calling for a permanent ceasefire, de Riviere said, I hope that at some stage we'll be able to do that. He also said that he's seen some progress in trying to convince the US to support the ceasefire in Gaza. Generally, Palestinians are concentrating on getting much needed supplies, including food, water, fuel and gas. They're also trying to take what remains from their destroyed homes in terms of clothes as well. It's also important to mention that the telecommunications companies inside the Gaza Strip are working on fixing all the damaged networks that had been attacked by Israeli forces. Many Palestinians have hoped that there are going to be renewed diplomatic efforts that might be made in the coming hours, which may lead to an extension of that ceasefire. Palestinian Red Crescent said Israeli forces arrested an injured person inside one of its ambulances at the entrance of the Janine Governmental Hospital. The arrest took place shortly after the PRCS says that its ambulance, which was carrying the injured individual, was prevented from reaching the hospital by Israeli soldiers raiding Janin. The injured person has sustained a gunshot wound in the leg, the PRCS earlier said, and addressing the UN Assembly is Riyadh Mansour as Palestine's ambassador who calls for a ceasefire admits what he says is the worst suffering since at least 1948. Not a single Palestinian generation has been saved from the scourge of war. Every single one has witnessed and endured horrors in its flesh. 
an entire nation over decades has faced disposition, displacement, denial of rights, destruction and death, maybe since the 1948 generation, this generation is the one that has, has suffered most painfully and traumatically. This is the deadliest period ever endured by Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. And they have witnessed many previous assaults. This is the largest forced displacement of Palestinians since the Nakba. This destruction is apoplectic and the humanitarian crisis catastrophic. There are no laws, no morals, no principles in this world that can justify this abhorrent, inhumane reality. It is one that shakes humans' conscience and demands global action for justice. Mr. President, the massacres against our people in Gaza have mobilized peoples and nations all around the world, speaking out against injustice and calling for justice, calling for a ceasefire now in Gaza. I repeat, calling for a ceasefire now in Gaza, calling for an end to the Israeli occupation and oppression of the Palestinian people, calling for a free Palestine. In some sensational news, after 17 days trapped inside a collapsed tunnel in the Himalayas, all 41 workers have emerged in relative good health in one of the great rescue operations you would ever hope to see. Many setbacks were encountered through technical problems with blasting before the last two metres were drilled by hand. Video footage from the scene showed Pushkar Singh Dami, the Chief Minister of Uttarakhand State, meeting with the workers as they emerged from the tunnel amid jubilant scenes. None of their symptoms are of weakness or fever. They're all healthy. While there were stretches for them to come out, they chose to come out crawling on their own, he said, before thanking the workers, engineers and government departments that helped coordinate the rescue mission. The rescued workers will each be given checks worth 100,000 rupees, which is about 1,200 US dollars, Dami said, adding that we will also ask the company that these 41 workers be allowed to go home and spend time with their family for up to a month. Meanwhile, Indian Prime Minister Modi said the successful rescue is making everyone emotional in a statement on X. I want to tell the men who were trapped in the tunnel that your bravery and patience are inspiring everyone, he wrote. We also salute the spirit of all the people associated with this rescue operation. Their bravery and determination have granted a new life to our labourer brothers. Everyone involved in this mission has set an amazing example of humanity and teamwork, he added. The men who had been trapped since November 12, when part of the tunnel they were helping to construct in India's northern Uttarakhand state, gave way, blocking their only exit with more than 60 metres or 200 feet of broken rock, concrete and twisted metal. The first workers were removed following a series of agonising setbacks, during which rescue efforts were halted when the heavy machinery used to drill through the debris broke down, forcing workers to partially dig by hand and adopt other riskier methods to bring them to safety. 
Engineers had previously attempted to excavate the debris in the exit shaft using heavy machinery, but were forced to abandon efforts late Friday after the powerful US-made drill they were using broke down just metres before the trapped men. Rescuers were also simultaneously drilling downward through the unstable mountain terrain as a backup way to reach the trapped men. But in the end, the initial plan proved successful. With the drilling completed, rescuers then pushed a large pipe through the last pump of the exit shaft for the men to be brought to safety. The labourers, all migrant workers from some of India's poorest states, have been receiving food, water and oxygen through a 53-metre or 173-feet pipe that had been inserted through the debris, and authorities say they remain in good health. Doctors on the site have kept in regular contact with the men inside, giving them tips on how to remain positive and calm. Their families have been gathering at the tunnel exit each day to pray for their safe return. The tunnel being part of Modi's Char Dam Highway Route, controversial multi-million dollar project to upgrade the country's transport network and improve connectivity to import Hindu pilgrimage sites in the region. This is how CNN reported the story earlier. Sarah, nothing short of a miracle is how I would put it. 17 days. After 17 days, you're seeing 41 of them hopefully in good physical condition, if not the best, being pulled out and they've been whisked away in ambulances for medical attention and focus as we speak. Now, it's taken a lot of effort on part of the government as well as the rescue teams on the ground. There's been disappointment day after day. There were these huge, heavy drilling machines that were brought in and they were cutting through the rubble, through the metal rods inside the tunnel that was impacted by the debris, cutting off these 41 men for 17 days from the rest of civilization if you may and today they're out they've used a pipe which is about three feet in diameter to and they've inserted it through the debris for the last few days and they've pushed it through and that's how they reached out to those 41 men bringing them out one by one on a stretcher that was mounted on wheels and using the pulley system the ropes really to pull them out gently the entire passageway inside the tunnel was illuminated with lights to make sure that these men who've been in darkness almost for 17 days do not not panic while they're being pulled out. For 17 days, constantly the authorities have been reaching out to them through megaphones, uh, through the pipes, supplying them with oxygen, food, water, medicines, mobile chargers, promising them that they will be pulled out. There's been dejection, there's been dismay, there's been disappointment in the run-up to the 17th day, but today there's only happiness, elation, relief that you're seeing on the faces of the rescue teams, the family members, and these migrant laborers themselves. 41 of them out in the last hour and a half. What a story, what a miracle, and what an achievement in one of the roughest and most difficult terrains in the Himalayas. Wonderful story. Community advocacy group Stand Up Now Australia is calling on Aussies to communicate their rejection of the 2022 World Health Organization's proposed amendments to its international health regulations, the IHR, by reading and signing the People's Letter by Friday, the 1st of December. The People's Letter addressed to the Director General of the WHO, Ted Gross Gabrasius, voices rejection of proposed amendments which would effectively reduce the time for rejection of any future amendments to the 2005 IHR from 18 months to 10 months, implementation of future changes into our domestic law from 24 months to 12 months, 
or proposed amendments that are subject of the People's Letter number only several, there are more than 300 IHR amendments due to be tabled in early 2024, says Stand Up Now Australia CEO Katrina Lane, explaining that failure to reject amendments within the given response time is taken as tacit acceptance. Stand Up's legal consultants advise that under the more than 300 draft amendments for 2024, WHO will have the authority to order countries to lock down require travel passes, require mandatory vaccination and restrict travel, amongst other dictates. The draft amendments are due to be finalised in January of 2024. If these amendments pass, either by formal or tacit acceptance, they will be legally binding, says Lane. The Australian Parliament will be required to comply with the WHO's recommendations by passing legislation to bring them into effect. Representing the Health Minister in the Senate, Labor's Katie Gallagher MP, has previously denied that the Australian government will be legally bound to legislate anything based on the WHO's direction. But legal experts disagree with this assessment of the IHR terms. Moreover, Lane questions the government's ability to properly review such a high volume of amendments in the proposed shorter timeframes, especially since it is unclear as to whether due process had been followed in reviewing the 2022 amendments. Key members of the committee responsible for public consultation and review of the 2022 IHR amendments have admitted that they didn't even know that they'd signed off on them, says Lane, who can only share this information on the proviso of maintaining anonymity of the committee members in question. Lane clarifies that this is not about whether the WHO is good, bad or otherwise, rather it's about sovereignty. The WHO is an advisory body, we didn't elect them to represent us, and they have a broad brush approach to medical situations that require nuanced solutions, which a global body cannot offer, says Lane. We're perfectly capable of governing ourselves. The cumulative IHR amendments threaten to undermine our self-governance. So far, New Zealand, Estonia and Slovakia are pushing back against the WHO. While Estonia and Slovakia have rejected the amendments outright, New Zealand has postponed its acceptance of the proposed amendments to allow the newly elected government to consider them against a national interest test. Stand-up has been actively liaising with politicians from all parties on the matter of the IHR amendments and reports the Labor government has advised that the time changes of the 2022 amendments are minor and no action should be taken. Time reductions should apply. This is not acceptable to us, says Lane. Stand Up is urging Australians to read and sign the People's Letter before Friday the 1st of December, which is the final day for rejecting these particular amendments. And please note that that applies to all countries who are also signatory to the WHO and that 1st of December deadline, no matter where you are in the world. And Hunter Biden is prepared to publicly testify before the Republican-run committee investigating his father's alleged influence peddling. His lawyer wrote in a letter on Tuesday, the GOP welcomed the letter, but insisted on holding a private hearing with the president's son. In a letter to House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer, lawyer Abby Lau said that Hunter Biden is prepared to answer any pertinent and relevant question you or your colleagues might have in a public hearing on December 13 or an alternate date in December. We have seen you use closed door sessions to manipulate, even distort the facts and misinform the public. We therefore propose opening the door. If, as you claim, your efforts are important and involve issues that Americans should know about, then let, let, let's put light on these proceedings. Lau wrote, explaining why the president's son would only testify in a public hearing and classified information usually cannot be discussed in such a public hearing. 
The committee is currently conducting an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden as his alleged involvement in his son's foreign business dealings. Republicans claim that Hunter Biden charged foreign clients tens of millions of dollars for meeting with his father during the latter's time as vice president of the United States. The president denies any knowledge or involvement in Hunter's business affairs. And Lau claimed in his letter that Comer's committee has been working for almost a year without success to tie our client's business activities to his father. However, Joe Biden has been photographed with several of his son's clients, and Hunter's former business partner, Devon Archer, told the committee in July that Hunter's position on the board of Burisma, the Ukrainian energy firm, was given to him solely to guarantee that that company would have influence over US policy. Archer also alleged that Joe Biden dined multiple times with Hunter's clients, that Hunter received money transfers immediately after at least two of these meetings. Earlier this year, the Oversight Committee and the House Judiciary Committee released evidence suggesting that Biden and his family received around $20 million in payments through shell companies from business figures and politicians in Ukraine, China, Russia and Kazakhstan. Some 150 of these transactions were flagged as suspicious by the US Treasury Department, according to the committees. Responding to Lau's letter, Comer accused Hunter Biden of attempting to play by his own rules. Republicans said that the subpoena requires Biden to appear for a private deposition, but that would be the president's son would have an opportunity to testify in public at a later date. Coming up after the break, details and criticism of Elon Musk's trip to Israel. This is Compass on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. 13 Israeli hostages released uh, as part of that ceasefire deal, uh, 49 days after they were taken hostage. 49 days. So that still leaves about 225 to 227 more hostages. Uh, I'm with John Bolton, the former national security advisor to Donald Trump. I'm with Britt Hume of, uh, of Fox News. I'm with a bunch of other people who say this gives Hamas too much time to do whatever they want to do, to do whatever they need to do, to regroup, to rearm, to re-strategize. And as much as you want the hostages back, it can't be at the expense of the other part of the mission, which is to destroy Hamas. So I think it's a mistake. Steve Malzberg on TNT Radio. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Israel will purge Gaza's mosques and schools of their poisonous ideology once its war with Hamas concludes. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told ex-owner Elon Musk in an interview Monday. Israeli Premier pointed to the wealthy Gulf states as examples of Muslim countries that had been de-radicalised. Speaking to Musk in an interview live-streamed Onyx, Netanyahu said that the destruction of Hamas would be a precursor to more systemic changes in Gaza. We have to demilitarize Gaza after the destruction of Hamas. We have to de-radicalise Gaza, and that will take some time, he stated, especially work on the mosques and on the schools. That's where children imbibe their values and then we have to rebuild Gaza. While some in his government have called for the wholesale ethnic cleansing and occupation of the Strip, the Prime Minister said earlier this month that there has to be a civilian government there without explaining whether that government would be run by the Palestinian Authority 
or another political group. Expanding on his vision of a de-radicalised Gaza, Netanyahu told Musk that you first have to get rid of the poisonous regime, as you did in Germany, as you did in Japan in World War II. Netanyahu pointed to the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain as examples of Arab states that had undergone this process, likely referring to their recognition of Israel in 2020. With Riyadh on the cusp of a US-brokered recognition deal before the current war began, Netanyahu added that the same thing is happening to a considerable extent in Saudi Arabia. Israeli leader suggested that his country's Arab friends could help rebuild Gaza, where the UN estimates that around half of all homes have been destroyed since the war began. Early this month, Jordanian Foreign Minister Ayman Safadi said that the Arab nations would not take part in any potential post-conflict peacekeeping in Gaza, nor would they clean the mess left behind the Israeli military. How could anybody talk about the future of Gaza when we do not know what kind of Gaza will be left once this aggression ends? Safadi adds, asked at the time. Musk travelled to Israel Monday to meet with Netanyahu and the families of Israelis taken as hostages by Hamas. The trip came amid accusations from Jewish groups that the billionaire was allowing anti-Semitic content on X and ended with Musk endorsing Israel's assault on Gaza. Following the trip, he made these comments about the situation. It was uh, certainly been an... Um a day, I would say an emotionally difficult day uh, to see the places where people were murdered. I just did a talk with the, the Prime Minister and um, I think there's, I mean, obviously there, there are three things that need to happen uh, in, in the Gaza situation. I mean, there's no choice but to kill those who insist on uh, murdering civilians. There's exactly. no choice. Um, they're not going to change their mind. But, and then the second thing is to change the, the education so that an, a new generation of, of murderers is not trained to be murderers. And then, the, and then the third thing, which is also very important, is to try to build prosperity. Respected award-winning journalist Glenn Greenwald commented on Musk's visit and comments and pointed to something many of us might not have considered, that even the wealthiest, most powerful people care about how they are perceived by the public. And I think one of the important things that I think sometimes people don't stop and think about, Elon Musk is the world's richest man. On paper, he's worth $250 billion, a quarter of a trillion dollars. He controls massively influential and powerful companies, not just X, but SpaceX, which has more satellites in space than any, I think, than all governments combined. He has Starlink that can either provide or deny internet connection. He has Tesla, a pioneer in electric cars. He's in control of all these companies. So you might think he has FU money where he's not subject to the influences and shame where he can be forced to do things like this, these kind of penance rituals because he got called an anti-Semitic, anti-Semite. You'd be very, very wrong for two reasons. One is it is a really strong human instinct not to suffer societal stigmatization and expulsion and scorn, where it's in our DNA. A couple thousand years ago, if the tribe expelled us, it meant that we would wallow into a corner and die, wither away. We couldn't protect ourselves from the elements or feed ourselves or protect ourselves without our tribe by alone. And so the people who evolved were people who had a natural instinct to avoid that kind of social exclusion. So when you have every major newspaper in the West 
and major, major influential people accusing Elon Musk of the worst thing you can stand accused of an elite culture in the West, which is anti-Semitism, of course you're going to do everything possible to get out of that and to prove that you're not that, including running to Israel and in the most sycophantic way I've ever seen, meeting with these very controversial figures, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli officials, and fully endorsing what most of the world has completely turned against. That's why Mark Zuckerberg, when the New York Times would run stories saying Facebook is allowing this material and Mark Zuckerberg has blood on his hands, Facebook would turn around and censor it on command. You would think Mark Zuckerberg's so rich, why would he care about being accused of having blood on his hands by the New York Times? It's because they do care. They, they want to be integrated into society. They like going to fundraisers. They like appearing at the White House. They like being embraced by society. And if you create a framework where you can make the public turn against them, they will desperately avoid that. That's what you saw today with Elon Musk, desperation to avoid that. Very interesting how people conceived to be on the same side of the fence can still criticize each other. Former WWE star Tammy Sunny Sitch has been sentenced to 17 years in prison for a fatal 2022 car crash while driving under the influence. Sitch, who is 50 years of age, pleaded no contest in August to charges related to the crash and death of 77-year-old Julian LaFrancis Lassiter. Sitch broke down in tears in the courtroom and apologised for what she had done. I know my words are not enough, but please know I think about you every day, Sitch told the victim's family from the stand. According to a report from Fox, every second of every day, and I will do whatever I can to make the changes I need to make sure this never happens again. No one should have to go through this, and please know that every single second of every day since the crash, I wish I could change places with him. At the time of the crash, Sitch had a blood alcohol content three and a half times the legal limit. According to a report from WKMG, Sitch had been charged with DUI causing death, causing death while operating a motor vehicle with a suspended or revoked driver's license, four counts of DUI causing injury to a person, and three counts of DUI causing damage to property. Sitch, who performed under the name Sunny, was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame back in 2011. The driver's license also has been permanently revoked. And coming up after the news headlines, a story that never goes away nor gets very far. This is Compass on TNT Radio. And now... Dude, I have huge news. I knew it! it. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Sweden could become a full-fledged member of NATO within weeks after Turkey Air signalled it was ready to ratify the Nordic nation's accession. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has come under fire for failing to stand up for Australian soldiers following this month's run-in with a Chinese warship. And a new bombshell report has revealed the CIA has recovered at least nine UFOs, two of which are said to be completely intact. On air and on the app. I listen on the app. Stay up to date around the clock. I listen, therefore I know. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. It is the biggest story that never seems to get anywhere. And thanks to Matt there in the headlines, we'll continue on that theme. With American spies having managed to recover at least nine potentially alien vehicles, two of them completely intact, the Daily Mail reported Tuesday, citing three anonymous sources. The sources, supposedly briefed on top-secret operations, told the UK outlet that the main player in the retrievals had been the Office of Global Access, 
a branch of the CIA Science and Technology Directorate established in 2003. There's at least nine vehicles. There were different circumstances for different ones. One of the sources said it has to do with the physical condition that they're in. If it crashes, there's a lot of damage done. Others, two of them are completely intact. The CIA has a system to detect unidentified flying objects while they're still cloaked and helps special US military units salvage the wreckage if non-human craft land, crash or are brought down, the source added. Another anonymous source described the OGA's role as basically a facilitator for US operatives to access areas where they would normally not be allowed. They are very clever at being able to get anywhere in the world they want to, the second source said. Most of the OGA's operations involve stray nuclear weapons, downed satellites or adversaries technology, according to the Daily Mail. But some missions have involved retrieval of UFOs, or as the US government now prefers to call them unidentified anomalous phenomena. The task at hand is simply to get it into custody and protect the secrecy of it, one source said. The actual physical retrieval is by the military but it is not kept under military control because they will have to keep too many records. So what they do is start moving it out fairly quickly into private hands. Two of the sources said that the OGA coordinates with Delta Force or SEAL teams working under the US Joint Special Operations Command or the Nuclear Emergency Support Team to recover the potentially alien craft. We have nothing for you on this, JSOC said in a written response to the British outlet. The Nest spokesperson said that the agency's personnel encounter materials from unknown origins on a regular basis, but have never encountered any material related to the UAPs. One of the sources described the CIA as the portfolio manager of the UFO crash retrieval operation. Recovered radioactive materials are sent to national laboratories run by the Department of Energy, while aerospace defense industry contractors handle other non-radioactive material and intact craft, the source claimed. After three military and intelligence whistleblowers testified about the UFO retrieval program to US Congress in July, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer sponsored a bill that would require the government to disclose recovered technologies of unknown origin and biological evidence of non-human intelligence. This UAP Disclosure Act was adopted as part of the 2024 National Defence Authorisation Act in September. And a new report by Human Rights Watch says hundreds of civilians from the West Darfur region of Sudan were killed by the paramilitary rapid support forces and their allied militias. Rights Group says the attacks may constitute war crimes. Earlier this month, there was a wave of violence targeting mostly members of the Masalit ethnic group after the RSF took over an army base in the state. With more, we rejoin this report from Al Jazeera. Verbal and physical abuse and a call for their killing. Shoot them, a man says. These videos surfaced from Ardamata in Sudan's West Darfur after the paramilitary rapid support forces took over the army base in early November. Following the takeover, rights groups say at least 800 people were killed, most from the ethnic Masalit group. It's believed those in these videos are among them. Days after the takeover, images of what looked like dead bodies on the streets in Ardamata were seen via satellite. Thousands of people fled during the violence, arriving to Adre in neighboring Chad. If they find a black person, they call him a fighter and kill him. If a black person is just walking, they kill him. 
They are people who hid inside the houses in fear, so they broke in with weapons and killed everyone. They're focusing on killing men, even if it's a child or a young boy. This is what's happening in Ardamata. As for the girls, they rape some and leave some, but they mainly kill the men in mass killings. Most of those killed were in displacement camps around the base, sheltering from a previous wave of attacks in June and July, which also predominantly targeted the Masalit. Those attacks resulted in over a dozen mass graves, according to rights groups and the UN. Human Rights Watch called the new wave of killings war crimes and called for steps to hold those behind it accountable. Back to Australia now, and Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill has threatened to extend parliamentary sitting this week in order to pass new laws to lock up the worst offenders released from the immigration detention, as she called on the opposition leader Peter Dutton to support the government's push to implement a preventative retention regime. Ms O'Neill on Wednesday warned Parliament would not rise for the end of the year until the government could legislate its response to the High Court, publishing its reasons for its November 8 decision, which ruled out indefinite immigration detention unlawful. The push comes as Sam Ibrahim, a former bikie and brother of Sydney identity John Ibrahim, landed in Sydney after being released from a Western Australian detention centre in the wake of the High Court ruling. Mr Ibrahim was on Christmas Island and a Perth detention centre before being released last Friday after the ruling found indefinite imprisonment was illegal, according to the Daily Telegraph. Following calls from Labor for the opposition leader to back the new laws, Deputy Liberal Leader Susan Lay said the opposition was willing to work with Labor to lock up violent criminals. Ms Lay on Wednesday said the coalition would be looking at the new laws carefully as she called for detailed briefings so the opposition can be confident the legislation will actually keep the community safe. I've always said we need a preventative detention regime and that was the problem all along and that was the issue that the Home Affairs Minister couldn't seem to get her head around or maybe there were others in the government pushing her to not understand community safety comes first, she told Sky News. And a police officer who allegedly recklessly tasered 95-year-old Claire Nowland in her aged care home has had his charge upgraded to manslaughter. Claire Nowland was 95, was suffering a dementia episode when she was allegedly tasered in a Cooma nursing home by senior constable Christian White. She died in hospital about a week later. Earlier this year, the 33-year-old police officer was charged with recklessly causing grievous bodily harm, assault occasioning actual bodily harm and common assault over the incident. On Wednesday, police charged White with manslaughter after receiving advice from the Office of Director of Public Prosecutions and State Crime Command's Homicide Squad. Mr White remains suspended from duty with pay, will next appear at Cooma Local Court on December the 6th. And coming up after the break, CBDCs, warnings on meat labelling and smart cities, all that up to something, but what? This is Compass on TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The biggest weather news is what is about to happen in Europe. I saw another one of those pictures of Greta Thunberg protesting today. I guess today is like week 300 or something of the climate strike where kids are allowed to be truant and, uh, you know, to protest climate. But she was all bundled up and I was like, well, wait a minute. Looks awfully cold over there. And uh, were there fossil fuels used in the making of those clothes that you have on? But I want to get serious about this. The fact that we are getting such a cold blast that is coming in, and this was telegraphed with a 
there's big storms. And the reason you see what's going on in the weather today is because all the weathermen start screaming and yelling about climate change instead of understanding the same thing happened in 2009 and they went into the deep freeze over there. But it's a serious situation. You know why? Well, first of all, the implications of that is that the United States is going to get very cold. Now, it's cold right now, but I'm talking about what could be really cold weather, severe cold, in the month of January. Because there's probably going to be a lot of snow in the United States during the month of December, especially after the 20th. So what we saw in 2009, 2010 was Europe got it in 2009 in December. And then the U.S. had their famous snowmageddon. And that occurred later in January and February. It'd be a little bit earlier this year, probably, looking at the overall pattern. But think about this. You're going to get that grid in Europe tested now. And especially Germany. Germany looks like ground zero for the worst weather, the most snow, it's going to be a little bit colder relative to averages up where Greta lives. But Germany is going to be in bad shape here in the next 10 to 20 days. But again, then you have to worry about the rest of the winter. You see what I'm saying? So we're going to have some things push come to shove, so to speak, coming up here over the next couple of weeks. And in fact, the next couple of months, because unlike last winter, I don't think this is backing off this year. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bustardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Here's a bushfire fact. Bushfires can occur without warning. So if you're traveling during bushfire season, here are three simple steps to remember. One, check the fire danger rating before you go. The higher the fire danger rating, the more dangerous the conditions. It may be safer to replan your trip. Two, Think about the area you're going to and what you would do if a fire started. How would you escape the area if you needed to? And where would you go? Check if there's a neighborhood safer place. Three, it's dangerous to drive through smoke or fire. If you can't find a way to avoid the fire, park in a cleared area, face the car towards the fire and turn the engine off. Then lie on the floor and cover yourself to protect yourself from radiant heat. Live bushfire ready. For more helpful tips, visit myfireplan.com.au today. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. TNT. Welcome back. A powerful United Nations agency has unveiled a plan to regulate social media and online communication while clamping down on what is described as false information and conspiracy theories, sparking alarm among free speech advocates and top US lawmakers. The UN Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, known as UNESCO, outlined a series of concrete measures which must be implemented by all stakeholders, governments, regulatory authorities, civil society and the platforms themselves the 59-page report released this month. The approach includes the imposition of global policies through institutions such as governments and businesses that seek to stop the spread of various forms of speech while promoting objectives such as cultural diversity and gender equality. In particular, the UN agency aims to create an internet of trust through a focus on what is called misinformation, disinformation, hate speech and conspiracy theories. Sounds like an element for not trusting. But anyway, examples of expression flagged to be stopped or restricted include concerns about elections, public health measures and advocacy that could constitute incitement to discrimination. Who is resisting the globalist plans to control every part of our lives, though? 
following on from misinformation laws, which of course do not require government proof. Instead, it can just say science or trust the science, which of course is not proof or in fact science for that matter. Next step being to implement a new social order, a great reset underpinned through orchestrated financial collapse, a necessary financial restructure or reset itself underpinned by providing the already financially strapped a universal basic income designed to get compliance into a system by using a carrot in the first instance, each time requiring further compliance to continue receiving said UBI. Welcome to your Orwellian future with your smartphone digging. In order to receive this month's UBI, you are required to attend a registered government health office to receive your latest preventative vaccine. Whatever happened to self-sufficiency, to individual thought, the right to self-determination and autonomy. Anyone above the age of 35 wondering what is being taught in our learning institutions these days? With education standards declining in the West, an argument that this is by design is not so wild after all. In this clip, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says the truckers' protest in Canada highlights the dangers of a CBDC. When I watched that happen, I recognised that freedom of currency is as important as freedom of speech. Everything is so simply tied together. Just at the Fox News appearance, somebody Connell asked me in Apple ATL 747 asked me about digital currency. One of the reasons that I think uh, that I had the revelation about how dangerous digitalized currency and the central bank digitalized currency CBDCs are came with during the truckers' uh, protest in in uh, in Canada. The Canadians a peaceful protest. People who are protesting, asking for the rights that we take for granted in this country, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of expression, and petition. And they were, the, the government agencies went out, took pictures of their license plates, and used other you know, news stories, et cetera, to get the names of these truckers, peaceful protests, and then shut down their bank accounts shut down their credit cards so they wouldn't work, they couldn't pay their alimony, they couldn't pay, they couldn't feed their children, they couldn't pay their mortgages. And for many of them, it took them many, many weeks to reconnect to their money supply. And when I watched that happen, I recognized that freedom of currency is as important as freedom of speech, because uh, if the government can starve you to death, none of these truckers work, charged with a crime, they certainly weren't convicted, they were simply disobeyed, they were simply dissented from government policies that they had a right to dissent from, and the government didn't like that, and so it was ready to, to literally starve them to death. If the government can do that to you, we are living in, in, in feudal serfdom. Speaking on a World Government Summit panel titled, Are We Ready for a New World Order? WEF Global Leader for Tomorrow, Pippa Malmgren, announces the arrival of a central bank digital currency. What underpins a world order is always the financial system. And what we're seeing in the world today, I think, is we are on the brink of a dramatic change where we are about to, and I'll say this boldly, we're about to abandon the traditional system of money and accounting and introduce a new one. And the new one, the new accounting, is what we call blockchain. It means digital. It means having a almost perfect record of every single transaction that happens in the economy, which will give us far greater clarity over what's going on. It also raises huge dangers in terms of
the balance of power between states and citizens. Most people think that digital money is crypto and private, but what I see are superpowers introducing digital currency. The Chinese were the first. The U.S. is on the brink, I think, of moving in the same direction. The Europeans have committed to that as well. Social engineering is going on everywhere you look, using science and the media to manipulate public thought based on the delusional belief that meat consumption is killing the planet. Climate cultists are now demanding cigarette-style climate warnings on meat products to prevent people from eating meat. Here is Eamon Holmes calling out one such PETA activist. There's a study which has found that if on meat you put a cigarette-style warning, so a picture of rotting liver or the perforated lung or whatever it happens to be, uh, the way you have in cigarettes, it could help reduce uh, the amount of meat consumed and save the environment. Uh, processed meat is indeed carcinogenic due to added ingredients such as nitrates, but some eco-activists are calling for warning labels for all forms of meat with arguments ranging from animal cruelty to saving the planet. So what exactly is the argument and is this a sensible thing to do? Margarita Sachkova is from the animal rights group PETA and backs putting these kinds of labels onto meat. I absolutely support this initiative. And, you know, we know that, you know, such labels on cigarettes, yeah. they really prevent people from smoking as they have they have access to information about all the damage that smoking causes to, you know, to their health. So it makes sense to add similar labels to meat because people deserve to have this information and consumers can just make very informed choices mm. whether they are buying something that is potentially giving them risks to their health. And we all know that meat is risks to, uh, linked to cancer, to diabetes, to heart disease. And essentially, we are all adults here. We are talking to consumers who, who deserve to know that also meat has impact on our environment. We but you're attacking the wrong people, aren't you, really? You're attacking farmers in Lincolnshire and Aberdeen and Coleraine and whatever, where actually they're, they don't, they're not big enough to constitute much of a problem in methane and whatever. You're killing an industry. The Irish beef industry, for instance, and dairy industry is being killed the way it is in Holland as well uh, because of protests from people like, like yourselves. Informed choices or more hive-minded consciousness control. And so once everyone is tied into a programmable and traceable currency, with a universal basic income, with work increasingly harder to find with the introduction of AI and AI robots, all living under the sustainability doctrine, eating plastic meat under the UN plan for total global control known as Agenda 21, of which Agenda 2030 is a mere milestone. All humans who once live on farms and in rural areas are to be forcibly relocated into densely populated smart cities referred to as human settlements. From the documentary Unsustainable, the UN's Agenda for World Domination, the pathway toward rewilding part of the earth whilst creating open-air prisons for the people in what are called smart cities. Recall we mentioned the United Nations Habitat One plan that came down at the Vancouver Convention in 1976. Under this plan, all humans that once lived on farms and in rural areas, so-called wildlands, will be relocated to cities, now referred to as human settlements. And uh, the idea is that if you concentrate populations into specific areas or zones, less energy usage, less water usage, and less transportation. So people will uh, have less reason to leave home. They'll uh, stay in their homes. They may even work out of their homes. 
and uh, so they're not going to be using uh, their cars, they're not going to be using energy, and uh, they're not going to be using water. Since, as we saw earlier, the UN is not big on property rights, it should come as no surprise that the first private property to be phased out will be single-family homes, what socialists at UN headquarters consider suburban sprawl. Instead, we the people will live in apartments and condos in megacities near railroad tracks. Our super-tall dwelling units will all be built to UN-specified building codes authorized by ICLEI, COGS, the ADA, and a myriad of NGOs and other friends of sustainable development. While the animals run wild in continental corridors, we the humans will live in transit villages and smart cities. Smart growth or a new urbanism uh, is that ideology that says that you shouldn't have more space than you actually need. So if you're a couple of people living in a three-bedroom house, well, you don't need that extra space. So why do you have it? it there's a, a clear concerted effort to make it really just about as miserable as possible to exist and use your own private transportation, own your own home. All impetus and incentive, uh, in financial and otherwise, is to convince people that it is unsustainable uh, to live in your own home, have air conditioning. It is their duty as a human being, as a global citizen, you see, you basically exist and, and little more. Our high-rise, stack-and-pack dwelling units, complete with smart meters and smart heating systems, will make sure no one uses too much energy. And if they do, the energy police, with help from the neighbors and eye-on-the-street surveillance systems, will be right there to handle the situation. Self-sufficiency is what used to be what people and governments aspired to. Only those who are self-sufficient have now become public enemy number one in an upside-down world. Is it any wonder leftist progressive governments are being thrown out rapidly around the world? You would think they might pull back on these policies, but instead they don't. Returning briefly to the documentary, it explains who really is the enemy of the new sustainability system. If you have a garden or a single family residence while you're watering your garden, you maybe have more than one bathroom, you're taking too many showers, you're using more than your 10 gallons of water a day. And uh, this is unsustainable. So uh, you need to be removed from your single family residence. Anybody that's got a couple of acres of land and his own water supply and can grow his own food, these people are a threat to the collectivist society because they aren't going to go to the politicians and say, please feed me, please clothe me, please give me shelter. That's the secret behind Agenda 21. They want people out of the country. They want corporations out there growing all the food and that kind of thing, but they don't want anybody living out there. To describe human settlements and the food sheds that sustain them as modern-day concentration camps might be a little over the top because with no cars, parking lots, or air travel, everyone will walk and use bikes, so they will be fit and healthy, at least as healthy as the genetically modified foods they are forced to eat will allow. So, neat warning labels, smart cities, programmable currency, compulsory medicine, have humans lost the ability to manage their own affairs? Or is this part of a much bigger plan to control us under their incompetence? 
with global COVID policy, the proof in the pudding of governments, bureaucracies, NGOs, and the media's complicitness, perhaps part of a bigger plan, that if we are to be controlled by our own species because we are apparently harming Mother Earth, to cull the human species with an accepted but unspoken plan to depopulate the planet. Well, Dennis Meadows is an American scientist and Emeritus Professor of Systems Management and former Director of the Institute for Policy and Social Science Research at the University of New Hampshire. He's President of the Laboratory for Interactive Learning and widely known as a co-author of The Limits to Growth. From 1970 to 1972 at MIT, he was Director of the Club of Rome Project on the Predicament of Mankind. Dr. Meadows has lectured in over 50 countries. He has been a corporate board member and consultant for government, industry and non-profit groups in the US and many countries abroad. He co-founded the Balaton Group, an international network of over 300 professionals in over 30 nations involved in system science, public policy and sustainable development. Here he is presenting his thoughts on population management. In one way or another, we are so far, globally, you are so far above the population and the consumption levels which can be supported by this planet that I know in one way or another it's going to come back down. So I don't hope to avoid that. Uh, I hope that it can occur in a, a, a civil way, I, I, and I mean civil in a, in a special way, I, peaceful. Peace doesn't mean uh, that everybody's happy, but it means that conflict isn't solved through violence, through, through force, uh, but rather in other ways. And so uh, that's what I hope for, uh, that we can, I mean, the planet can support something like a billion people, maybe two billion, depending on how much liberty and how much material consumption you want to have. If you want more liberty and more consumption, you have to have fewer people. And conversely, you can have more people. I mean, we could even have eight or nine billion, probably, if we have a very strong dictatorship, which is smart. It's, unfortunately, you never have smart dictatorships. They're always stupid. So, but if you had a smart dictatorship, and a low standard of living, you can have it. But, but we want to have freedom and we want to have a high sentence, so we're going to have a billion people. And we're now at seven, so we have to get back down. I hope that this can be slow, relatively slow, and that it can be done in a way which is relatively equal, uh, you know, so that people share uh, the experience and you don't have a few rich, you know, trying to force everybody else to, to deal with it. So those are my hopes. I mean. These are pretty pessimistic hopes, you know, but um, that's, that's what lies ahead. Quite incredible. He wants peaceful and shared culling of the population. In a single lifetime, we've gone from not enough of us to too many of us, from an ice age to a furnace, to preventing death to allowing it, from discrimination to anti-discrimination and back to discrimination of the dissenters from fighting wars to prevent communism to creating viruses to install it. No wonder people are oblivious on one side of the fence and why people on the other are exhausted. 
But knowing sunlight is the best disinfectant and knowing that every day more sunshine illuminates these inconvenient realities being pushed upon us means that despite the urgency, there is enough hope that humanity will awaken from its slumber that those who are meant to protect us with their trillions in expenditure to make the world safer, more convenient, are actually doing the people and the species a disservice not seen before in human history. Well, that concludes today's edition. Up next is Chris Smith, and following Chris today is the return of Dean Mackin. I hope you can stay tuned. This is Jason Olborn for Compass on TNT Radio.